Uh, James chapter 5, we've been making our way through the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 7. It says, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, James is writing to some afflicted people. They are under pressure. That's what the word affliction means in the Bible. It means to be under pressure, to experiencing, uh, to experience pressure. And that's what this church is. They're experiencing some pressure. They're experiencing some affliction from two sources. First, they're experiencing affliction at the hands of the wealthy. That was the verses that just came right before it. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of the slaughter. This is what he's saying to the wealthy. You have condemned You have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. And so he's speaking to now the people who are suffering at the hands of these wealthy people who only want to take advantage. But he's also speaking to people who are afflicted just in general. In just a second, he references Job. Job's uh, affliction, Job's suffering was not at the hands of one specific person. He was actually caught in a cosmic battle between God and God. And Satan, uh, which we can relate to both today. We have people here, uh, um, many among us who are just just feeling afflicted just in general. Uh, maybe it's work, maybe it's money, maybe it's stress, maybe it's, uh, it could be any number of things. Some of us feel afflicted and we, we don't even honestly totally know why. Um, and others of us are feeling afflicted at the hands of someone else. They are taking advantage of us. They are being inappropriate with us. They are being harsh with us. And he's speaking to a a group of people who are afflicted. And when you are in infliction, when you are in a season of infliction, uh, affliction, not infliction, affliction, you have to wrestle with an important question. You have to ask yourself, can I trust God even when it it feels like I'm on the losing end. You have to wrestle with that question if you are going to have faith that extends throughout your lifetime. Because we will all have a moment where we are afflicted. Can I trust God when I feel like I'm on the losing end? James is going to tell us yes, and he's going to give us a word. And that word is patience. A few things I would love for you to write down. This morning, first, be patient like the farmer. Be patient like the farmer. Verse 7, therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You must also be patient. Now, a first century Palestinian farmer was stressed. They were stressed because they had a farm a family farm that existed for the family table. 
It was not a large farm. They didn't have a ton of acres. They didn't have a diversified crop. Uh, It was a family farm for the family table. And they put all their eggs in one basket when they sowed their seed in October, hoping that they would have a harvest in the spring. If they didn't have a harvest in the spring, then they were in significant trouble. But it was a long process. City folk like us, when we think of farming, we think of it as physical toil. But equal to physical toil for the farmer is emotional toil because everything is riding on that crop family farm for a family table and they had to to sow the seed in October and then the early rains would come at the end of October beginning of November and then the seed would turn into a sprout and the sprout would grow but that sprout needed to be matured by the later rains that came in March and April which would produce maturity in the crops that had been planted and only then when the process was full could there be a harvest and it took patience it took a lot of patience at my kids school they have these rewards called uh, stallion bucks Uh, Every school kind of has something similar. When the students have been good, then they get a stallion buck and they can collect stallion bucks to turn them in for rewards. One of the rewards is that they don't have to wear shoes for an entire day, which seems like a reward for the kids and punishment for the teachers. But I'm assuming that the teachers are one running these things and so they don't mind stinky feet and that's a reward. You can go to the treasure box in the classroom. You get enough of these things. You can go to a treasure tower, which is in the principal's office. And so my kids love these things. And uh, The other day I was cleaning out my office and I, uh, I saw on this piece of paper a photocopy of a stallion buck. <laughs> it didn't quite work out for them, but the, you can tell the intent there. Which, you know, I immediately felt like a failure as a parent because I had told them not to lie, don't cheat, use good manners. I had not ever included in my parenting talks, don't counterfeit money. <laughs> I, had missed, I had missed that, I guess. So I later, th- later, thankfully, I found out that they weren't trying to counterfeit money for school. They just wanted to institute and implement a similar process at home in which we would give them bucks in turn for prizes, and I told them, your prize is that I'll let you sleep here tonight. That's your, <laughs> that's your prize. But a counterfeiter, when you think about it, is really the opposite of a farmer. See, the farmer has to sow the seed at the beginning and then wait for the harvest at the end. But a counterfeiter says, I don't want to wait. You know, I don't want to do the long process. I don't want to be patient with work, get paid, save, work, get paid, save, work, get paid, save. I want to skip all that. I don't have the patience for that. I want to skip all of that. What James is saying to us today is, listen, there's a harvest for our season of affliction. He already told us what the harvest was in chapter one, right out of the gate. James chapter one, verses two and three, he tells us that we should consider it a great joy Whenever we experience various trials, whenever we experience a season of affliction, because first, it's producing for us spiritual maturity. That's a harvest that you receive in a season of affliction. We get wisdom, he tells us. In fact, we get so much wisdom, God can open the doors of wisdom and will not withhold wisdom for us, especially in a season of suffering. That's a harvest that we get in a season of affliction. We also get the crown of life. By being patient through a season of affliction. But you and I need to be careful that we don't reach for counterfeit relief 
from our season of affliction because it will prevent us from getting the harvest that our season is earning for us. All kinds of counterfeit relief for seasons of affliction. First, we can turn to purchasing. I mean, who among us has not had a bad day at work and then gone and got a set of golf clubs just because we had a bad day at work? You know, and in my mind, there's a justification. There's a total link between a bad day at work and a new set of golf clubs. You know, it's hard for me to connect the dots like with words and actual thoughts. But I know somewhere in the heavenly realms that those two things are connected. Some of you ladies are wearing a pair of shoes today because last week you were afflicted by your children. And it just felt good to go and buy something. It feels good, but it is a counterfeit relief in a season of affliction. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with buying things unless it is robbing you of the harvest that God wants to produce in you in this season. Purchasing people sometimes can be a counterfeit relief from a season of affliction. I think many of us have experienced, we, we know people who have... Uh, been in a season of singleness and a relationship doesn't work out and there's a breakup and instead of seeing that season all the way through and feeling that all the way through and letting God bring a harvest of good things in that tough season we just immediately jump to the next person to preoccupy us so we don't have to sit with the pain we don't have to sit with the affliction so we just jump into something else and it robs from us what God actually wants to do in us because it's a counterfeit relief. Uh, Purchasing people, uh, power. In a season of affliction, you feel powerless. You feel that you are the victim and I am the victim of all these things that we can't control. So you know what? I'm gonna take control of my life and I'm gonna do whatever I want to do. I'm gonna stop listening to all these other voices out there and I'm gonna rebel. I'm gonna do what, what seems good to me and I could care less what seems good to anyone else. And is that a good life strategy? No, it's not. But it feels like relief from a season of affliction because we're not in control Now we can be in control, but these really are stealing from us the harvest that God wants to bring in you, through you, for you in this tough season. So we need to be patient like the farmer. We don't need to take just the easiest shortcut out of pain because the easiest path may not be the best path. God will bring a harvest. The second thing I want you to see, be patient with each other. Be patient with each other. He says in verse 9, Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. You know, to complain here, it literally means to groan. But we wouldn't say that in English. We wouldn't say, brothers, do not groan about one another. It's not natural. So they use the word complain. But the best description is to groan. And we've experienced that. We, we've felt that. When there's been a bad day at work, we want to come home and we want to complain. We want to groan about the bad, the bad day. We want to groan about the person that's caused the bad day. We want uh, to look for somebody to blame for our situation because it feels right to have someone to lay all this pain at their feet. And we end up groaning against one another. And some of us are in this cycle where way upstream something bad happened 
And that person took it out on another person, which took it out on another person, which took it out on us. And then we took it out on someone else. And that person's taking it out on someone else. And we're just in this chain reaction. We didn't start it and we didn't end it. We're just in the middle of it. And James says, listen, don't groan about one another. You get two choices. We can groan about one another, which happens often because afflicted people afflict people. People in pain cause pain. That's option number one. Option number two is we can groan to God. We get that decision. We can groan about one another or we can groan straight to God. We see this in the Old Testament. In the story of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved at the hand of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians force them into work, force them into slavery. And it says in verse 23 of chapter 2, After a long time the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites and he took notice. So we can groan to God. Our affliction causes pain. We can take that pain to God and it will ascend to him, the Bible says, and he will listen. God is committed to hearing your groan. In fact, he's so committed at one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus left, he promised his disciples, listen, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not abandoning you. I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God will live in you. It'll be my presence, the presence of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit, who lives in us. And it says in Romans chapter 8 that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, when you and I are in such a season of difficulty, pain, pressure, affliction, and we don't know how to put words around that pain, the Holy Spirit will actually groan for us. So when you get the phone call, and I'm there with you, you're there with me, and it's bad news, and, and I don't know what to say, and you don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit groans. When you're standing over a casket, and I don't know what to say, and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit groans. When you're in the hospital, and I don't know what to say, and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit groans. When someone leaves, when you're hurt, when you're mad, and you're frustrated, and I don't know what to say, and you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit groans. We get two choices in our response to our affliction. We can groan about one another, or we can just groan straight to God. And even when we don't know what to say, God has made a path for us to groan anyway. So we should be patient with each other. Next, we should be patient like the prophets. Verse 10, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. And we could use lots of different prophets. We could talk about Elijah. We could talk about Ezekiel. We could talk about Hosea. But there's one whose suffering needs to be lifted up above all the others, and that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a very difficult ministry, and because of that, he was known as the weeping prophet. And when you really read the book of Jeremiah and you understand his story... You see why. Here are some of the things that Jeremiah had to endure. First, we know from chapter 7 that the people never listened to him. So imagine being a prophet your entire life. You have one mission to warn people, to encourage people, to show people the way, and, and no one ever listens. 
Uh, the people never listened. False prophets undermined his message, chapter 14 and uh, uh, chapter 23. People devised plans to bring him down, chapter 18. People wanted to kill him, chapter 11, chapter 18, chapter 38. His own relatives betrayed him, chapter 12. He was beaten and put in stocks, chapter 20. He experienced rejection, mocking, and public scorn. He said, I am a laughing stock all day long, chapter 20. He, every time he spoke, he cried, uh, chapter 20. All his trusted friends were watching for his fall and ready to take revenge on him, chapter 20. He, received, he was seized by prophets and other priests and um, they put uh, him in prison chapter 32 he was forbidden to go into the temple chapter 36 he was accused of treason he was beaten he was placed in a dungeon for many days chapter 37 he was imprisoned again and thrown into a muddy well where he was left to starve to death chapter 38 and tradition tells us that he was stoned to death in Egypt and James is speaking to us in our season of affliction, and he's saying, listen, follow the, pro- the, the example of the prophets. Next thing I want you to write down is be patient like Job. Be patient like Job. Verse 11, see, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, the story of Job is a little bit more nuanced than we usually bring up. In fact, whenever we tell the story of Job, really what we're doing is just telling the story of the first two chapters and then maybe we skip to the end. But the story of Job is is much longer than two chapters. In fact, it's 42 chapters. And we lift up Job as an example of patience just as James did here. But Job actually cursed the day that he was born says in chapter 3, verse 1, After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. And he said, May the day I was born perish, and the night when they said a boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or shine a light on it. He cursed the day he was born, and it's easy to see why at the end of chapter 3 and verse 25. He says, For the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. Essentially, he said, My worst nightmare is my reality. And so he curses the day that he was born. And then in chapter three, uh, you know, the rest of chapter three, he kind of vents a little bit. And and really the tone of Job's complaints is one of justification. Because he does what we do in seasons of affliction, which is he looks at his own experience and then he looks out at the experience of other people and the only conclusion is I do not deserve this you know I I do all these things always I'm always faithful I always do this I always love the poor I'm always pure I'm always righteous always 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 and then he says I never do these things I never do this I never do this I never participate in this I never 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 and then he looks out at other people and he goes they do all of those things that I never do and they don't do any of the things that I always do this should not be happening to me I don't deserve this he has three friends who come along and his three friends they feel like He's wrong, and so they begin to lecture him, and they lecture him in their own minds according to the authority of God. And really, at the end of the day, what they do is just condemn them. And for many, many chapters in the book of Job, this is what happens until a young man named Elihu or Elihu uh, steps in in chapter 32. And uh, Elihu says, uh, listen, I'm young. 
and I've been silent because I'm, I'm young. He says, you guys are all old. Job, you're old. Your three friends are old. But listen, just because I'm young doesn't, know what I'm, doesn't mean I don't know what I'm talking about. And, and for five chapters, he lets Job have it with both barrels. Full on. Job, this is how you've been acting. And here's the truth. This is what you've been saying. And here's the truth. This is what your perspective is. Here's what God's perspective is. And then God takes the baton from Elihu. And for another four chapters, God lets him have it with both barrels. And at the end of those nine chapters of confrontation, this is how Job responds in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. So after Elihu gets finished with him and the Lord gets finished with him, Job says, I take it all back. I was speaking without knowledge. I didn't know what I was, taking, uh, I was talking about and I repent. Then God turns to the three friends. It says, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So in two verses... God shows us the difference between these three friends and with Job. Because Job said, Job complained. Job asked questions. Job didn't understand. But God tells us the difference between the three friends and Job. He said, you three friends, you didn't speak the truth about me the way that my servant Job did. So it's it's helpful for us in our seasons of affliction. When we feel like we're losing, ask your questions. Pour out your complaints. Make your petitions. But all the while, be careful to say things that are actually true about God. See, you get all the permission you want today in your season of affliction, in your moment of pressure and pain to ask God questions. Ask your one big question. Ask your tiny million questions. You can ask as many questions as you want, but do not cross the line into questioning God. We can make our petitions. We can make our pleas. But we cannot subpoena him to come and appear and stand trial in which I am the judge. That's a line that we cannot cross when we are pouring out our heart when we're pouring out our complaints, or we're talking about how we feel. We need to be careful that we continually say things that are true about God because what happens so often is our affliction will turn to attack his character. I think this is why James ends this section in verse 11 with with praise when he says, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So lest any of us are confused today in our moment of affliction, 
God is rich in compassion and rich in mercy. Be patient like Job. And then the last thing, be patient until the Lord returns. Be patient until the Lord returns. He says in verse 7 of James chapter 5, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. Then he says in verse 8, You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And in verse 9, Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. He says Jesus is at the door. Jesus is near. The Lord's return is close. You know, when we start talking about Jesus' return, it kind of comes with a lot of baggage in our minds. It, it's got all these different things attached to it. Uh, like before there was Harry Potter and Hunger Games and Divergent, there was a little series called Left Behind. Anybody familiar with the Left Behind series? Yeah, if you're in your 20s today, you don't have any idea what we're talking about. It, it's like if the Hunger Games and the Bible you know, had a baby together, that's the Left Behind Novels And it was like five books, 10 books, 20 books. It filled up the 90s with books. And it was, it was a fictionalized version of uh, some of the facts that we read about uh, in, uh, Jesus is coming in, in the scripture. And uh, so a fictionalized account of facts and interpretations. And it was very interesting. My mom was reading these books a lot in the early 90s. And I remember she had one of the books on tape. And so we would drive all over Springfield, Missouri, hearing about Nikolai Carpathia. Uh, <laughs> Nikolai Carpathia was the Antichrist figure in the Left Behind series. So if I meet you and your name is Nikolai today, I'm not sure that we can be friends because I'm coming preloaded that the, the Antichrist name is Nikolai. And Nikolai, in case any of you are interested, I know you guys are taking notes on this. Nikolai was actually born in Romania. He was essentially engineered with uh, the blood of a previous Roman emperor. And, and so we got that going. He was very successful in his early 20s, made a lot of money. And then he turned to politics. And later he was inhabited by Satan. So it was just kind of your normal, normal thing. So when I started thinking about Jesus' return, if I linger on it for more than just a few minutes, eventually the name Nikolai Carpathia is going to come to my mind. And we've all got that. We've all got a little sliver that we heard one time when we were going up in church or some movie that we saw or some book series that we read. And so when we think about Jesus' return, it's got all these different things kind of added to it that are confusing and complicated. And somewhere there's a blend in our minds? Is it fact? Is it fact and fiction? How do they fit together? So what happens is then we just don't end up thinking about it. But, but James brings to us today, he's like, no, 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 no. The Lord, Jesus, he's, he's coming back. He, he's returning. This is what he told his disciples. You remember his disciples, they left their vocation. I don't know what your vocation is today, but maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're a driller, maybe you're in the armed forces, whatever it is, imagine leaving that to just follow somebody around for three years and you were with them always for three years unless he woke up earlier than you and he snuck off to pray, they were with Jesus. They were with him when he healed people. They were with him when he was persecuted. Uh, They were with him when he took the bread and he lifted it up and he said, this is my body broken for you. They they were there when he lifted up the cup and said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. They were with him in the garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating drops of blood. That's how much affliction he was under. They were with him when he was arrested. They were not with him when he died. 
they were there in the room Sunday afternoon. Mourning the loss, hearing the rumors of the empty tomb when he appeared and he said, see my hands and see my side. And they were with him for 40 days while he appeared to many witnesses. And they stood outside Jerusalem on a hill and he made them a promise. He said, I'm leaving and I am returning. Jesus will return. If he's not going to return, then this has been a colossal waste of our morning. It's a colossal waste of your life if Jesus really is not coming back, you can find a lot more convenient and comforting ways to be a good person. But to be a Christian inherently is to say that I have believed that Jesus has done something so significant in the past that I'm willing to operate my whole life around it. But I believe that he's also with me in the present and I believe in the future I will see him face to face and eye to eye and voice to ears. That will be my experience. He is coming. And James said that that is the finish line. It's patience, 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 patience until we see him. And then that's the finish line. When every eye looks to the east and looks to the west and he lands on that same mountain outside of Jerusalem and we see him for the first time that's the finish line and until then James says be patient be patient in your affliction be patient at the hands of somebody who's hurting you be patient in just what it's like to live on planet earth and the apostle Paul man he tells us what Jesus' return is going to be like. He, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, About the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, will come just like a thief in the night when they say peace and security. Which is a good word for some of us because right now some of us are like, man, everything is peaceful and everything is secure. I'm here at church because my wife makes me be here. I'm here at church because of my kids and I want to be good people. But I don't really feel a total uh, heart need for Jesus because everything is peaceful and secure. Everything is good. My life is good. My job is good. Got a lot of hobbies. I do whatever I want. I go on a vacation. I'm living a great dream. Peace and security. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that when Jesus returns, he's going to come on you like a thief in the night. And all that peace and security that you have right now, it will evaporate in a moment. And then he says, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, that's what Jesus' return will be. I've had a front row seat what it's like to have a baby. The last year, uh, Will is uh, six months old and uh, we did not have a baby, Amanda and I. Amanda had a baby. I was a spectator. I just want to make that clear. I don't need a long line of ladies after services over today to straighten me out. I know. It's just a spectator. Go get the ice chips. That's, that was my primary contribution to the whole process. But for nine months, you just look forward to the moment when the baby comes and stage one is uh, joy and excitement when you find out you're pregnant but also sickness it's hard and then sometimes the sickness goes away it's just a lot of joy and excitement and then the next stage seems to be of course I didn't experience it but it seems to be aches and pains aches and pains baby's growing aches and pains which gives way to the next season which is just pains just pains 
And then there's that last stage of readiness. Any moment, any moment can I mean, You got the bag packed or you haven't packed the bag, but you know what you're gonna get in the bag. So one night when Amanda was fully pregnant, process was coming to an end. Uh, she says, uh, it's about 10 o'clock at night. She says, I, I think maybe tonight's the night. I think tonight's the night. And I was like, man, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to bed right now, but if tonight's the night, then just wake me up. We're still married, miraculously. Miraculously, we are married still. Then I did. I went to bed like a terrible husband. This is our third kid, so, you know, I'm less committed this time, I guess. <laughs> sure enough, she wakes me up, 3.30 in the morning. She's ready to go. She's been, she's taking a shower. She's ready to go. She's got the bags packed. And I got to get dressed. She's got the plan for where we're dropping off the kids and all that. And later that day, we went to the hospital. For nine months, you look forward to this one event. And then it happens and it's still a surprise. And that's what the return of Jesus should be like for us. For those of us who have believed, we should be thinking about it. We should be excited about it. When you are having a baby and you're pregnant, you wake up in the morning and it's one of the first things that you think about. You don't go your whole day and go, oh yeah, by the way, we're pregnant. And oh yeah, by the way, we're gonna have a baby. No, it's constantly on your mind. And James says, and the apostle Paul with him, no, it always needs to be on our mind. One of the things that you think about the most and I think about the most should not be sports and it should not be our jobs and that should not be our neighborhood and what we're gonna do this afternoon. One of the most consistent things that should flash across your mind is Jesus is real and I'm gonna see him and today could be the day and I wanna get to a place in my heart where I've checked all those selfish bucket list things off or I deem them as not important and what I want most in life is Jesus, could today be the day? Could today be the day? Could you just, could today be the day? It's better than getting married and it's better than having kids and it's better than getting a better job and having a bigger home and better home and it's better than our vacation that we planned today. Could you be the day? Because that's what you, you, you act like when you're having a baby. You don't want to put it off. You want it to come. And Jesus is returning and for some of us it's going to feel like a thief in the night. And all that peace and security, peace and security, my life is good, I've got everything I want, it will vanish for those of us who have eagerly longed for his appearing it's still going to take us by surprise that's the finish line and at the finish line we won't need patience anymore because there will be no affliction at the finish line we won't need endurance anymore because there will be no pain no loss no hurt no disappointment No unmet expectations, no sickness, no fear. But we haven't reached the finish line yet. So we have to wrestle with the original question that I brought up earlier. Can I trust God when I'm on, or I feel like I'm on the losing end? I love the way the story of Job ends. You know, we didn't read it, but I want to read it now. The final words of Job. says this in chapter 42, verse 10. And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. And all his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. 
They offered him sympathy and comfort concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a coin and a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the earlier. That sentence is in Job's story. And by God's grace, that sentence is in your story. So I brought it with me so you could read it with a blank for you to fill your name in. And it'd be great if you could write it in the margin of your Bible because I think it will make a difference. That your story will be, is not yet currently, but will be. And the Lord blessed the latter part of your life more than the earlier. You're like, well, I'm not seeing any of that blessing. You know, I'm on the downside of 50 and downside of 50 seems to be worse than the downside of 30 and the downside of 40. And I'm not really seeing that. Well, the promise is not yet. That sentence is a guarantee when the Lord returns. When the Lord returns and you segue from this earlier part, which we're in now, in the earlier part, there's pain and there's loss and there's disappointment, sickness, disease, affliction. When Jesus returns, you segue into the latter part. And in the latter part, you will be more blessed than you ever were in the earlier part. But until then, let's be patient. Let's pray. What's your affliction just in your spirit of prayer? Are you in a season of affliction? A moment of affliction, feeling pressure, big, small? Can you see the finish line? Can the finish line strengthen your heart today? God, we can say it as well with our soul today because we know the Lord is near. So give us patience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We've been talking about our patience uh, today, but God also has patience. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3 or 2 Peter chapter 3 dear friends don't let this one thing escape you with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay but is patient with you not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance so everybody to look at your watch if you got one it's a Sunday April 10th uh, 12 13 I feel like we're doing pretty good on time by the way I would like credit for that it's Sunday, April 10th at 12.14. As of right now, Jesus has not yet returned. So what that means is his patience is lasting a little bit longer. And why is he patient? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want there to be anyone when he returns that would be on the outside looking in. He doesn't want anyone to have missed the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. And because he's Lord, we can be saved. He wants to give everyone an opportunity. In fact, more than one opportunity to believe, to put their faith in Jesus. And some of us today, we've been delaying, but God has also been delaying. 
if he's going to delay one more minute, then maybe we should stop delaying. Maybe we should stop pushing him off. Turn away from our own way, which is leading us nowhere.